HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. This is Lisa Held coming to you live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. Today, I'm here with Sienna Chrisman, a Brooklyn-based writer and researcher who covers agricultural policy and social justice. Sienna, I'm so excited that you're here. Thanks for coming. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, I feel like we, this is the first time we're meeting, but I think maybe we're, we're kind of kindred spirits in a way, just from yeah. reading your writing. <laughs> same. <laughs> um, so we write for some of the same publications. We, you know, we live in the same place. Um, so I, I want to talk to you. I invited you on to talk about um, some of the big economic challenges facing farmers um, that you've been reporting on. Um, before we dive into that, um, why don't you give us a little bit of insight into your background? Sure, thanks. <clears throat> um, yeah, and thanks again for having me. It's really such a pleasure to to meet you and to be here. Yay! <laughs> uh, um, so I, um, the thing that I always go back to, I grew up in a town of 350 people in rural western Massachusetts. Um, my parents were part of the Back to the Land movement in mm. the 70s. Um, and we didn't have a farm then. We had a big garden. Um, but I was really raised in this very rural environment. Um, and my dad is from central Illinois. And while I did not enjoy my trips to the Midwest as a kid, um, and after my grandfather passed away um, in the early 2000s, I, f I thought, this is great. I don't have to go back to the Midwest anymore. <laughs> I'm all done with that place. And But there was something about um, my dad grew up in this town that, w that was really thriving when he was there when he was a kid, and that he had just really seen it die, essentially. Mm. And his his sadness about that, I think, really 
impacted me, um, as well as some things in my own childhood. Um, I grew up, we, when I was little, we went to a, um, a small dairy farm to, to get our milk. Mm-hmm. When I was like eight or nine, they, the, the farmer sold his cows. Um, and so there was kind of a, a visceral level of like understanding of what loss of farm community means right. um, that I think is is a lot of what's really driven my work, uh, like psychologically. Um, I studied at Mount Holyoke College um, and and did a lot of work there actually that fed into um, into my current work around like connecting connecting broader trade policies with then the impacts that they have on people's everyday lives. Um, I spent a couple of years in Italy and seeing how different the food culture there mm. um, is there um, was really, really impactful um, at how different that is here. Um, so those are some of the things. And, and then I, I spent a number of years, I spent eight years at um, at Why Hunger, which is a grassroots support organization based mm. in New York. Um, and it was there that I started working with farmers, commodity farmers. Folks growing mostly mostly living in the Midwest, um, some in the South, growing corn and soybeans and dairy farming, um, and it was really I, I really saw how their I mean a number of things one their struggles around like corporate consolidation and how little control they had over their own practices and food production were really similar to a lot of like the urban gardeners that I was working with here in. Bed-Stuy or other places mm-hmm. in Brooklyn, and that was kind of amazing. Um, and then also really seeing that those stories of those Midwesterners were not being recognized or acknowledged at all by this burgeoning food movement, mm. which like 10 years ago. Um, it was just really... They, they were not the fetishized farmers. Right. <laughs> um, and, and they were really demonized in a lot of ways, even though it seemed clear to me that a lot of their struggles really epitomized actually what was going on um, for, for many farmers and for food production overall. Right. And so you have all this experience um, looking at agriculture and within the food movement, but you, you don't have a background as a journalist. No. No, but you're, I mean, that's amazing because you're such an incredible reporter. And <laughs> one of the things that struck me about Um, your story on Civil Eats, which was called Is the Second Farm Crisis Upon Us? Um, And I encourage people to read it um, if you go to civileats.com and just search farm crisis or, (laughs) you know, (laughs) it'll it'll come right up. Um, One of the things that struck me about that story was that it was really deeply reported and had so many voices of um, lots of different farmers from across the country, people in rural communities. Um, And... (coughs) Um, I guess to, to start out to kind of talk about that, so you've you've been thinking about these issues for a while um, and the struggles of rural communities in particular and farmers. Um, so what made you say, okay, it's time to write this story? Like, it, is this the moment where we're in a farm crisis? Sure, yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I guess I'll sort of start with the point about... Um, Right, so I don't, I don't have training as a journalist, and thank you um, for your <laughs> kind <laughs> words on my reporting. Um, so I came up through, um, I've, just, I've done a lot of advocacy, um, and I still do a lot of that. I, I wear kind of a, wear one hat as a very part-time independent freelance journalist, mm-hmm. um, and then I do a number of other things do in, in writing and research, um, I do, do some communications work for the National Family Farm Coalition. So I'm still like simultaneously doing advocacy and right. journalism, and I'm kind of always figuring out like how to 
how to do those things simultaneously mm. in a way that's objective and fair and and what is objectivity in journalism anyway. <laughs> we, we could have a really long <laughs> yeah. conversation about that. <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of trouble with a lot of um, agriculture reporting because of that. Mm. Um, so, right, so I've been working with a lot of these farmers for a lot of years. Um, and, and really, f I mean, definitely these commodity farmers, but also a lot of different kinds of farmers through all this advocacy work I've done. And I've been hearing from them for so, I mean, the whole time I've been doing this work, how hard things are. Mm. And largely that's been for small-scale farmers, certainly dairy farmers, certainly vegetable farmers. Um, and, but then this year really was becoming clear that, that also the larger-scale grain farmers were facing something new. Mm. Um, and that's been kind of rumored for two or three years, I'd say. I've been, those conversations have been going on with, I, I work with, <clears throat> do some work with Farm Aid and Food and Water Watch and a lot of um, community-based organiz farm organizations around the country. And yeah, there's been kind of these rumors. And this year it was pretty clear that like this was the time that needed to be, this needed to be talked about. Mm. Um, Civil Eats actually approached me about doing, uh, about writing something for their rural environment an agriculture project, um, which was really, um, it, they're putting dedicated funding into reporting about rural issues this year. Um, and based on my prior reporting with them, I was really pleased to be asked. Um, so we, we kind of batted around some ideas and, and it just seemed again, like this was a, this farm crisis that was happening now for grain farmers was not really, again, something that was on the radar of kind of the food movement and um, the, the farmer's market farmers or the farmer's market aficionados, I guess. Um, and I was I, in my really early reporting, I was talking with friends and colleagues. I have a lot of folks who really straddle that line. Um, and I was talking with and try, kind of trying to figure out, like, what is the what's really the through line of the story that I want to tell here? Um, and I was talking with one friend who's a young vegetable farmer in Iowa, and she has a really great finger on, a, on the pulse of kind of what's happening, both in vegetables and a larger scale. Mm. And she, I said, you know, is, is, are people in your community, like the young farmer's market farmers, are they talking about a farm crisis? And she said, well, you know, I, I, we know that that's happening out for, for the grain farmers. We know that that's happening, but, but people aren't really using that term. But, but people, she said, people, people talk about how screwed we all are all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and and that, that really resonated, like, I've been hearing that yeah. for years. Um, and I realized it was a chance to tell the story of both what's happening to the, to the grain and dairy farmers, which is kind of more new, but also to shine a light on struggles that, that many other sectors of the farm economy have been having for years, right. decades even. And, and it also really illuminates how, how fragmented the farm economy has become. And I really found that in my reporting. Because yeah. again, there were some people who would say like, yeah, we're not really feeling, we're not feeling this new crisis because this is not different right now than it has been for 30 years. And that, that was more the small family farmers, would you say? That that, mm, so that was more like the diversified vegetable farmers. Mm -hmm. Um, and and the black farmers, um, but it kind of I mean it does depend some. There are like some smaller corn and soybean growers also who've maybe 
been kind of at the edge for a number of years. Mm -hmm. Things in dairy have been at the edge for a number of years. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm always struck. So, so there's sort of like all these different groups we could talk about. And I mean, in terms of the young farmers, like the, your friend you were talking about, the, the thing that I'm always struck by every time I talk to young farmers is how they all have other jobs. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like at all, basically all of them, if they have, you know, diversified vegetable farms yep. and they're young and they, you know, have started in the last few years, it's almost always true that either they have another job or they have a partner that right. has another source and of that's, income. I will say that's not just for young farmers market farmers. Mm-hmm. That is for, I can't remember what the statistic is, but like almost all farming families have somebody working off farm. Hmm. You can't, you just can't, support a farm anymore under current farm policy with without an off-farm income which right. is crazy <laughs> right it's, it's <laughs> for so many reasons yeah. Um, yeah. and so I want to ask you more about you said the thing that felt more new was the grain that like the grain farmers are really struggling now um, when in your reporting what did you find in terms of why that's happening and what are the like those challenges that they're facing what do they look like yeah it has to do with um the way that prices fluctuate on the global market. Um, I am not an economist mm. at all. Um, but the, I mean, the main thing that I, that I know about it is that overall agriculture prices farm, the, the prices that farmers get that they take home tend to be for the last 30 years, tend to be low, often tend to be below the price of their, their costs of production. So there are some times that those prices go up, mm-hmm. that they get, uh, that farmers make more. And that will have to do with ethanol is a, is a big reason that prices have gone up because it um, increases the demand for corn. Um, changes in, in global markets, um, if, if there's more chance for export, um, prices will go up. And so some of those things had been happening in the past few years and then a number of factors um, all kind of converged right now to send the prices back down, which is, again, like their more normal state. Um, farmers tend to be really optimistic all the time. Mm. And, and, and I, I'm, not, I'm not sure if, if, they're always, if they always know that farm prices tend to actually, like the state of farm prices as, as a norm tends to be low. I think that that a lot of optimistic farmers think of, oh well, this is a this is an abnormality. Um, surely they you know the the time the three year period when when prices were high that's what we're going to get back to. And they might, um, but but they might not. Mm-hmm. Um, so so prices were going back down anyway, and then then this trade war started. Um, so even I mean in February prices USDA was predict was predicting prices. This year, um, down, I can't remember now the percentage, right. um, a lot from, um, from last year. And then, yeah, then, there, then the president started this trade war. Right. Um, and that is hitting, um, that's hitting corn and so- soybean farmers especially um, really hard. And, and it, it hits um, different pieces of, of rural economies also. I mean, it's, I think... Yes, yes, the trade war is hitting farmers, and also when factors of the trade war hit 
um, impact rural economies more broadly, mm-hmm. that all kind of feeds into the larger problems of a farm crisis, um, right. just in kind of depressing the whole rural economy and community. Yeah. And um, and then another big part of um, the story was dairy, which... Yeah. I mean, then this is, you know, (laughs) we haven't even done that many episodes of the Farm Report this season, but I think the challenges dairy farmers are facing has come up at least (laughs) three or four times. Um, Yeah. Everyone's talking about it. And there was one stat in your story that really shocked me about the number of farms just since January, um, the number of dairy farms that went under in Wisconsin. It's it's now five. It's now 500. Oh my God. And it was like, it was what? Three something. 380 something when this piece went to print. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And it's now the, the October number was, was 500. That's crazy. So yeah, that's 500 dairy farms in Wisconsin have closed since the beginning of this year. It's, it's really like hard to wrap your head around yeah. that. Um, yeah. And can, so can you talk a little bit, a bit about like the reporting on dairy specifically and some of the stories that you were hearing from people? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really hard. Um, so I've been doing some kind of informal reporting and research work on dairy for four or five years. Um, and when I started, prices were were like kind of reasonable. Um, they were still below the cost of production, but um, but farmers could make it work with those prices. Um, and since then, since 2015, they have just taken a nosedive. Um, so I can talk a little about why that is and the problems with, with the dairy pricing in the dairy industry, um, or I can talk more about some of the stories that I've heard. I could like go on for a full yeah. show about dairy. Yeah. Also. Why don't, well, why don't? Yeah. Maybe. Maybe let's first talk a little bit about why that is because okay. I think that would be really helpful. Great. Yeah. Um, so the the way that dairy pricing works is extraordinarily complicated, and I'm, I won't really go into that. Um, but excuse <coughs> me. It's okay. Um, <laughs> but the main issue is that. Like with everything, like with all agricultural commodities, um, the the policy that exists for dairy is to produce as much as possible, um, and then to get whatever price you can get on the market for that. Um, and so, what's been happening in the past few years is that an increasing number of so we we still have many small family farms mm-hmm. um, producing producing milk in, and that's certainly true in New York, um, in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. Um, but then in the last few years, there's really been increasing investment, uh, in, um, enormous mega dairies, right. um, 10,000 cow dairies. And these are being opened in places that have no business, uh, raising dairy farms in New Mexico. Um, dairy takes a tremendous amount of water. Um, Texas is big, Texas, Colorado, um, I mean, even California. California is the biggest dairy state, mm. and they have water problems. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, yeah, there's these 10,000, 100,000 cow dairies, and it, it just, that, that amount of milk just completely saturates, saturates the market. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the, the governmental, the government's idea then of, with what to do with that 
is, okay, well, now we have too much milk, so we have to figure out what to do with that milk. Um, so much milk then depresses the price for all farmers. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, for, and the, the mega dairies can absorb the price drops. The small family farms cannot absorb the price drops. Mm. Um, and so that kind of, in a nutshell, that's what's been happening. Um, and, and that's why this whole question of, of dairy exports has become really important. Um, in this recently agreed um, new NAFTA deal that was that was just um, just finalized last week, um, the new agreement with Canada. That one of the th- big sticking points for that that was holding that up was Canada's so-called protectionist dairy policy. Um, and what that meant is Canada has a, a very common sense. Um, dairy policy that we ought to adopt here called supply management. Mm. Um, And it controls the amount of milk that is produced. So it it looks at how much milk Canada drinks and uses and and exports, and then that is how much milk the dairy farmers are supposed to produce. Mm. Um, And and that means that then they don't overproduce and flood the market and and, um, send the prices down. Um, the U.S. feels like that is protectionist um, and that we want access. What that means is that some of their market is closed to right. U.S. exports, and we want access to those markets. Um, the problem in that whole narrative, speaking of um, journalistic objectivity, <laughs> the one thing that was never brought up in, in all of those discussions um, I mean, that I never saw talked about uh, by journalists covering the, the NAFTA deal mm-hmm. was... Um, Canada's dairy market is smaller than that of Wisconsin. So so <laughs> to like even fully opening their dairy market won't actually make very much difference right. at all. Um, and yet it was it was really touted as like this is the thing that we need to solve all of it. It was, yeah. yeah. I mean I saw a lot of reporting yeah. and they're saying this is like, you know, gonna make such a difference yeah. for dairy farmers and and, huh. and a lot of like big dairy organizations are saying now, oh, this is going to fix everything. This is going to solve the crisis. Um, but it's not because it's not going to take care of, we have a huge glut of milk in this country mm-hmm. and Canada opening their market a tiny bit is not going to absorb all of that at all. Right. And yeah. I mean, is there a chance it could also then create, a, I mean, sort of a globally expanding dairy crisis and that then yes. their supply management system would be thrown off, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we, what we've been hearing from um, Canadian dairy farmers, it's, it's, they are not happy with this at yeah. all. Um, right. And then as, as, their, as, as their supply management system is chipped away at, then what will happen is that they will be in the same kind of system as we are for the, that you just have to produce as much as possible, mm-hmm. leading to even further glut right. um, and and lower prices. Lower prices, yeah. yeah. It's like, I mean, it's really basic economics mm-hmm. um, that if you produce too much, then the price goes down. Yeah. And that, you know, I just thought of this, that number in Wisconsin, um, did, you, did you find numbers um, like that in terms of, small dairy farms are going out of business um, that applied to like New York and just New England? I couldn't find those. Mm. Um, I, it's clearly also happening in, yeah, in New York. Which is why I ask because it's, you know, I, I, we've both talked to lots of farmers over here. That yeah. Are, yeah. And, but I haven't seen those numbers either. No. Yeah. I, and I, I wonder if it, if it might be that um, ag and markets here or 
the other departments of agriculture in other New England and nearby states um, maybe just don't keep those numbers in the same way um, as Wisconsin does. So instead, what we have here is stories like um, in the spring when Agrimark, which is the largest dairy co-op in New England, I guess, um, sent out with their milk check, um, they sent out suicide prevention, suicide hotline information um, to all of their dairy farmers with, with their milk checks. Right. Um, and and that got really mixed, mixed reviews. Um, like, yes, it was great that the co-op was acknowledging the problem, um, but, but just providing mental health counseling information doesn't actually fix the problem. Right. Um, well, yeah, and I mean, I, I think it's like, I don't want to minimize at all the importance of mental health support services. Totally. And there's so, you know, that, that is so important that farmers have access to support. Um, but I, I, I mean, I reported a story earlier this year on the, um, on suicide among farmers and the farmers that I talked to, actually, I think one of them might have was someone that you had in your piece. And when I asked her about the, those hotline numbers that were, you know, being given out and, and all these support services, federal policy that was proposed to increase mental health services for farmers. Um, you know, she was like, we just, we don't need, we don't need a hotline. We need to be paid what the milk price. is worth. Like we, we can't be paid less than the cost of production. It's not going to, it's not going to help if we can't make ends meet. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's like, it's sort of important, but it's not like you said, it's not really solving anything. Yeah. 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 And actually to that point, if I can just kind of jump in on a yeah. small piece there. Um, <clears throat> so Joe Schroeder, who I led off the piece with and who was kind of one of my main characters, mm. um, is the farm advocate at farm aid. Mm -hmm. And he talked, he talked a lot about farm advocacy and the idea of farm advocacy is they talk about it as a three legged stool and it's, um, they address mental health issues, legal issues, and financial issues. Mm. And farm advocacy has a long history. It was it, it's a discipline, I guess you can call it, um, that began was really was really started by a lot of farm women in the 1980s um, during mm. the farm crisis. Mm -hmm. Then, who were seeing a, a lot of the women um, were the ones who kept the books, and they were seeing. They, they couldn't figure out what was happening. The, the, in the 1980s, there was this foreclosure crisis, and <clears throat> they couldn't figure out what was, what was happening, why their farms were being foreclosed on. And so a lot of them, kind of independently of each other, took it upon themselves to learn farm law, huh. and largely to understand their own situation. And then once word got out that, that they knew stuff, um, then other people started calling them. Um, other people whose farms were in foreclosure who needed help. And, and so some of these women, and it was almost, almost all women, um, developed these services um, where they would help farmers work through their, work through their legal and financial issues and right. also provide mental health counseling services. Um, and sometimes that was like the immediate need. Um, but the people were triggered into crisis because into emotional crisis because they were having, like their lives were falling apart right. <laughs> for very real reasons. Yeah. Um, and, and there were a number of years when some states actually funded farmer advocate hotlines. Um, 
Minnesota had a really robust one, Oklahoma also. Um, and and they had so they had state funding and they also had um, a whole network of volunteers mm. um, in Oklahoma a I think any farmer could be admitted to a state mental hospital for free for a short period um, to kind of get out of crisis. But the point of the farm advocacy work was not just to address the mental health issues. It was to look at, right, this person is in crisis because their whole life is falling apart and they are losing their livelihood and their land and everything that their family is built for five generations. Of and course, they're yeah. in crisis. And so, like, helping them work through that as well. Right, address all of those different yeah. components. Yeah. And that network of farm advocates is just very, it's very reduced from what it used to be. Um, and mm. it's the, the shame is that um, a lot of the, the funding that there is these days for, um, for f- farmer mental health is really just for mental health. It's not for these other pieces. Um, and that just, it's, it's super important, but it makes it less sustainable. Right. Okay, we need to take a break. <laughs> We're on a roll. Um, uh, when we come back, I want to ask you more about um, the farm crisis of the 80s and how that can inform what we're talking about um, today. Uh, we'll be right back. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. We're back. You're listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio. This is Lisa Held. I'm here with Sienna Chrisman, and we've been talking about the farm crisis. Um, So we talked a lot about um, what's happening right now, and I think one of the interesting things about the work that you do is that you have um, a lot of context that informs um, the interviews that you're doing now. so you're working on a book, is that right, about the 80s farm crisis? Very slowly, yes. Okay. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I, I, I think where I want to start is, can you just sort of give a little bit of like a background on what the farm crisis of the 1980s was and what it looked like? Because I don't, you know, I don't think a lot of people know. Um, and it that was a true. really big moment, right, for um, our food system. And we're still living a lot of the effects today. So do you, can you just sort of like give us a little cliff notes on yes. what happened? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yes, I would be glad to. That's the primary thing I like to talk about all the Perfect. time. <laughs> um, so 
<clears throat> so I like to go back. Um, okay, so looking at the 1980s, I like to just take one extra step back and okay. look at um, starting in around the 1960s, there, was <clears throat> there were some really major changes in farm policy um, from a system that was more that was supply management, as I've talked a little about, um, which guaranteed a price based on farmers' cost of production, which we can kind of think of as a minimum wage. Okay. Um, to a system of plant all you can and then get whatever price that you can out on the free market. And then since that price will probably be low because we will have so, because we're planting fence row to fence row, as Earl Butt said, um, since that price will be low, then the government will make some, make up some of the difference in some kind of subsidy or whatever. And so we can think of that more like food stamps or welfare. Mm. And I find it really interesting. I mean, this, this is really a key point that is very little understood by many people who work on food, certainly, um, but agriculture as well, is that, is that difference. Um, mm. And so the subsidies that we have now or the crop insurance are much more like this food stamps idea. Food stamps are great. I'm a big supporter of food stamps. Yeah. But I would rather have a higher minimum wage of course. for more people. <laughs> um, and, and, so, and farmers would rather actually be making, uh, making, a, a, making up what their, um, you know, a, pri a real price, a living mm -hmm. wage, um, rather than getting government subsidies to make up the difference of what they're not getting on the free market. So that, that change really went into effect more or less in the 60s. Earl Butts, Nixon's ag secretary, um, talked about get big or get out, um, plant all you can, plant fence row to fence row. Um, and that was very new. <clears throat> so in the 70s then, like I said, there, um, in agriculture, prices fluctuate. Um, they tend to be low, but sometimes there are times when they are higher. So in the 70s, it happened that for a whole bunch of different reasons, International green markets were strong. Um, banks were lending really aggressively. Farmers were, were expanding. Um, and there was just a lot of optimism. Prices were really high. And, right, and farmers bought a lot of land and a lot of other assets. And in, in a lot of cases, they were really encouraged to buy their lenders, um, which included both USDA lenders and bankers. Um, sometimes farmers would go in <clears throat> to the bank and say, you know, I need I need a advance. Farmers farming works on credit, right? Um, so they would go in and, and say, I need a small advance for my seed and my other inputs for the season, um, which I will then pay back at harvest time. And the banker would say, Okay, that's great, but also, don't you want an enormous new tractor? And are you thinking about <laughs> buying that other tract of land that you had your eye on? Um, and the farmer would come out with with those things, mm. um, which was exciting, and. Then what happened, again, op optimistic farmers, I right. think. Well, and they were sort of heeding this call, right, to plant totally. more and plant more. Exactly, and, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, it was really this cultural shift of, like, mm -hmm. we have to be feeding the world. And right. that's when that a lot of that narrative was really starting. Mm -hmm. um, so then, you know, what goes up must come down. Like, naturally, those high prices did not stay high. Mm -hmm. um, so in the 80s, again, a bunch of different... Um, political and economic factors, including the Soviet grain embargo, um, other foreign grain markets drying up, um, interest rates skyrocketed. So a bunch of different factors um, led to really a bottoming out of that economy. Um, land prices fell, 
And, and for a lot of farmers, that meant that assets that they had had on paper one day, the next day were completely different. Like they had not changed anything, but because of the way that interest rates and land prices were, were working, rising and falling, mm-hmm. um, their, their assets were completely different. And suddenly they had no assets um, and in fact had a lot of debt. And bankers and other lenders started calling in those debts. <clears throat> and so then what was happening was farmers were going in for for their loan, for their seed and other inputs, and being told that, in fact, they couldn't have that, and also all of their debt for that new tractor and that tract of land was now due at the end of the month. And they didn't have that money. Right. <laughs> um, they had had that money on paper maybe two years prior, but then they, they no longer did. So... There was this foreclosure crisis um, that just swept the, I mean, rural America overall, but particularly the Midwest and the Grain Belt um, and into the Great Plains, um, some down into Texas, Oklahoma. Um, and and it was a lot of consolidation. Um, it led, so the overall outcomes were fewer, bigger farms. Um, F- fewer farms f- Fewer overall. farms Overall, and, and, and they were bigger. Than, right. Yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> right. You can kind <laughs> of you. read that phrase two ways. <laughs> yes, <laughs> fewer farms that were bigger. Right. Um, and then with with more farmers leaving farming, um, you know, some of them would move into town, some of them would move away. But then all of the businesses and community community institutions that they that relied on those farmers just had less uh, less base, okay. uh, less economic base. And so a lot of small towns started really drying up um, and hollowing out. And rural schools closed, rural churches closed, um, because there were just fewer people there. Um, And so I really point to that period. Um, I wrote a piece right before the the 2016 election um, called, if you want to understand the rise of Trump, head to the farm, um, that connected this period of farm crisis um, to not as the only reason, um, obviously, for for votes for Trump, but but just really looking at that rural America has never recovered from that period. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it's really interesting now since the since the 2016 election for the last year and a half, like many people are talking about rural America and like what's wrong with rural yeah. America and all of that. Um, and people talk about mining and manufacturing and a lot of other factors and almost nobody talks about the change in the farm economy. Why is that? I don't don't know. (laughs) We're trying to change that little by little. It's weird to me that I am basically, not not quite, but almost the only person who's writing about that. Mm. Um, And it's just such... It's such a the base of a lot of how how these economies worked, um, and it's I mean, so visible. Even if you just drive through rural America, I mean, you yeah. see the the towns, you can see the remains of the farms, and I mean, it's just yeah. right there in front of you. Yeah, right? <laughs> I think it. I think in a lot of ways, it it really points to the the total invisibility of farm policy, mm. um, and I mean, this was something that we can get to it. Um, at the end, talking about possible solutions, mm. but um, but some of the people that I interviewed talked about, and, and other folks that I've, other colleagues have talked about this too, that um, there is this sense coming out of this whole idea of America must feed the world, America's farmers are feeding the world, 
um, the consolidation and growth of farms is just the natural way of the world. There's no other, that is just what happens. Mm-hmm. And, and that narrative, again, really invisibilizes the fact that there are actually very clear policies behind all of those things. Like, consolidation and getting and farms getting bigger are not natural. It's natural under the current policy that we have. Right. But but it's based on a series of decisions. Yes. It's not right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so there are some people, um, there are some people who are trying to make those policies visible now um, because without them being visible, you can't do anything about them. Right. Um, and so that's important. Those The people who are doing that work are important to me um, because the thing that's really ex- that's really interesting to me about the 1980s farm crisis is the activism in response to it. Mm. Um, so this crisis was sweeping the um, the Midwest in particular, rural America, and and it was a time that um, you know there, there were a lot of right wing groups that were trying to capitalize on um, right wing and like racist anti Semitic groups <clears throat> that were trying to kind of lure in farmers and say oh you know it's the um, it's the Jewish banking cabal that's that's the heart of your of your problems here. That's why you're losing your farm. You know, it's kind of the same thing as it's the immigrants who are taking your jobs. Right. Um, and in response, then in the '80s, there were people. There was a very strong, active grassroots farm progressive farm movement that formed, and it formed in communities, and then it joined together all across the Midwest, into the Great Plains, into the South. That instead. One of the organizers talked about um, we're, there are all these hate groups and we really want to organize for our communities with love. And they pointed to <clears throat> these policy changes and kind of who was behind those and that they were really serving major corporations, corporate interests. Mm-hmm. Um, and they talked about, you know, mostly white farmers talked about it's really bad here, but it's even worse for black farmers and Latino farmers and native farmers um, they really connected their struggles um, all across a lot of different um, lines of difference. They worked with um, with labor unions, with churches, with um, with group with urban groups, um, and they really managed to change the narrative in a very significant way mm. about the about what the problems were and what the solutions were. Um, and in fact, in 1987 um, or 86. <laughs> There was eighty-six or eighty-seven. We'll say um, there was a very progressive farm bill proposal um, proposed by uh, Senators Harkin and Gebhardt, um, which would have reestablished supply management as the farm policy. Mm. And that farm bill proposal ga- came extraordinarily close to passage. It did not quite pass, but very close because of things like the entire Congressional Black Caucus supported it. Um, and that was because of these alliances that the farm movement had made um, with unlikely allies. Mm. Um, and and they had really, these activists had told the story, had cha- changed the narrative in rural communities such that um, even some of the conservative farm state legislators who might have kind of hated the idea of this progressive farm bill, mm. they had to vote for it because that's what their constituents wanted and their constituents were telling them that. Um, so that whole period of this very progressive grassroots farmer-based activism, that's not something that we really, that as 
as Americans, we like have space for or know about yeah. in the national idea of like what is rural America. Um, and, and I'm, I get really excited by this, um, by that idea. And, and that's not the only time that there's been progressive farmer activism. There's actually a very long, long line of, uh, long history of that. Um, and, and so the idea of this book is to, to raise up these stories and, and look at also like, what can we learn today from, from that history? Right. I mean, do you see that as being a possible, like that kind of progressive activism happening now on this issue? <laughs> it's really tough. Um, no one. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's really tough in large part because of how much rural places have already changed, yeah. um, that there are just fewer farmers and there are fewer people in those areas. Um, so the organizing base is just much, much smaller. Um, also the way that, you know, the culture wars have changed a lot of the conversation in rural America, um, such that it's, you know, so much more about guns and gays, um, than about like a fair price for farmers. Right. Um, so, and, and actually some pieces about the, um, about churches closing, um, really makes a difference. A lot of rural, small rural churches were really instrumental during this, um, at moving forward, some of this farmer advocacy in the eighties. Um, that said, I was really the, the most exciting thing to me in some of my reporting for this piece we're talking to people who were who were having these conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, this young <clears throat> young woman, Kayla Kalrek, who's running for um, Cother, Kayla Cother, sorry, <laughs> um, who is running for Iowa State House, um, and she's she's going around and having kitchen table conversations with people about what matters to you, what does your economy look like, how could it look different. She's trying to to uncover again, the policy solutions mm-hmm. um, or the, the policy causes of a lot of the problems. Um, and she she and others, um, on the other side of the state, there's a woman, Denise O'Brien, who was really, who was, who was really instrumental in the 80s movement. Um, and she is also running for a, a seat in the Iowa State House. Um, yeah. So there, there are people who are, who are doing this work. Um, and the thing that I always tell urban folks is to is to seek out candidates like that or small rural organizations um missouri rural crisis center land stewardship project um, federation of southern cooperatives are three of my top favorites Mm. um and support the work the grassroots work that is along those lines that's actually happening Mm. um in rural places because because it's there it's there in almost every state um but it just gets really it it gets lost right well, and it's interesting because I, you know, it, you know, I've been thinking as you talk about this about the activism, the progressive activism that's been kind of springing up more on um, the liberal side of things right now, right? And these movements that are um, picking up a little bit of steam. And in a in a way, it's it's there is so much that maybe like people could talk to each other about, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's 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 like you know, c- asking for policies that. Um, will result in people having equal access to resources. Like this is a, this is a thing. The same thing that women, the women's movement is asking for. It's the same thing. The fight for fifteen for minimum wage workers working at a, um, 
you know, McDonald's, the farmer isn't making $15 an hour. And so there's so many things that actually overlap. And yet there's such a, you know, when you, when you hear the politics, it's like urban, rural and red and blue. Right. Um, I think that that's such an important point. And I mean, that, that is the kind of work that in the eighties, this farm movement was doing. Mm. And, and that's the work that we need to be doing today, um, is actually right. Breaking things down around issues. And some of those, some of the family farm organizations that, that I work with, that's what they do. They organize in rural Missouri around healthcare and, Right. You know, <laughs> and like healthcare is a major need in a lot of rural Missouri. Yeah. Um, so you know, you start a conversation around that, um, and and who knows where it might lead. But like, you have those conversations rather than being put off by, oh, I know who that person voted for in 2016. Mm. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's that. That's really exactly it. Yeah. Um, and and that that's why I really try to say to urban people as as a Brooklynite myself yeah. <laughs> um, that I, I feel like there is so much um, you know in in Brooklyn we dismiss rural voters as all being racist and dumb and voting against their own self interest mm-hmm. um, and it's way more complicated than that mm-hmm. and and if we're if we're making if, if we're dismissing them, um, I mean, they're also dismissing us for a lot of other reasons. Right. Um, but that's not helping anyone. And like, are there ways that we can actually be finding where the, where the pieces of common ground are? Um, absolutely. And given that I kind of sit in the middle of these two places, I feel like, okay, these are the conversations that, that I'm trying to have and encourage. Right. Um, we're running out of time and (laughs) I want to keep talking about this for a lot longer, but before we wrap up, I really want to, I want to hit this, I want to quickly hit the supply management thing again, because I feel like we glossed over it. And from everything I read that you've written, that really stood out to me as like, wait, there's this policy solution that I've never heard of (laughs) that maybe, um, could really help farmers and rural communities. Can you just, um, sort of quickly talk. <laughs> sorry can you just quickly talk about this huge policy issue <laughs> um sure. just sort of like a what is it and i mean why why don't we have it anymore um so it's again it's the, it's that thing you can kind of think of it as as a minimum wage right rather right. than um rather than a uh, food stamps mm-hmm. um the three the three pieces of it are um so it it's such a terrible name, supply management. Yeah. But the way that I end up always explaining it is that it manages the supply, which somehow like makes it clearer to me. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> it's like, really strange, but I see right? what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> so it it sets a limit on on how much farmers can produce, mm-hmm. or or anybody. Um, but if we're talking about farming, and it does that. Um, oh shoot. <laughs> Um, it, it does that by, um, yeah, by, by setting an actual limit. Um, it, there is a, a, um, let's call it a grain reserve. Mm. Um, and so that's a way that the, that if the limit is exceeded, then the government can buy back extra grain off the market. Um, I will say that China has had, um, grain reserves for, Maybe five thousand years um, in the Bible, the story of Joseph. Um, that's about grain reserves. <laughs> uh, 
Um, this is a thing. P- human societies have had grain reserves forever. Mm. Um, the U.S. has not had a grain reserve since 1996, um, which is a little alarming. Um, so the grain reserve is a big piece of it. A floor price um, for farmers so that so that their prices never dip below the cost of production. Um, and then conservation is generally also a piece of a supply management program. Got it. Um, because that also takes some land out of production and incentivizes farmers to... Um, to take care of it well. Mm-hmm. Um, so different pieces of that system that we used to have have been being chipped away at since the 50s into the 60s, especially, as I said, the last vestiges of it were removed in the 1996 Farm Bill. Um, and and instead, we opened up the market, um, just we opened up agriculture to the free market. Um, the really important thing to say about this is that... Um, under supply management, the companies who are buying or whoever it is that is buying the commodity, they have to pay the floor price. Like they have to pay the the going rate. Okay. Um, And the government does not really pay anything. Um, In Canada, the dairy supply management, um, their program, the the government is like not on the hook for like they're mm. not paying a lot for that. Um, so it's the buyers of the commodities in a supply management program mm. that have to pay the prices. Um, under our current system, the farmers the, the prices are um, you know opened up to the free market. the The prices are very low. Um, they are not enough to sustain the farmers. And then the government gives gives them the subsidy or crop insurance or wh- whatever it is. Um, and But what that means is that those very low prices, that's now what the companies, the agricultural companies, the grain companies, that's what they are paying. Right. So what this all is, and, and then, the, then the government is giving, yeah, this ta- taxpayer subsidy. So what, the, what our whole current system is, is really a giant subsidy for agribusiness and for grain traders. Right. Um, and they are a very powerful lobby. Um, and they have fought very hard for many years to have this system because it allows, it allows them to pay less. It allows them to, um, it allows us to have a very cheap meat system mm-hmm. um, because all of the grain that goes into factory farmed meat is purchased at b- far below the cost of production. Um, food may be more expensive um, marginally under a supply management program. Um, but we, it, it would be a very, but the people producing it would then not potentially be making a living exactly, wage. Exactly. So. Exactly. And, and it would also be a very, very different food system yeah. because like we couldn't have factory farmed meat, like, right? That would be insanely expensive. Um, huh. so that, I mean, that's, that, that's a major piece that, that really never gets talked about mm. is that, um, our current, farm policy is really just a huge giveaway to agribusiness Mm. at the expense of farmers and eaters and public health and the environment and animal welfare and basically everything else. Right. (laughs) Well, that's sort of a depressing note to end on, but we have to wrap up, unfortunately. Um, (laughs) No, this has been such um, an amazing, amazing discussion. Thank you so much for coming. Um, I I feel like maybe I have to have, to have you back so we can keep talking about the actual <laughs> solutions, which we like be glad barely to. got to. <laughs> um, thank you so much, Sienna. 
Um, and thank you all so much for listening to the Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. We'll see you next Wednesday. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.